Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we thank You that our life is hid in Christ and that in You we can sing praise to Your holy name because our life, hell-bent, depraved, wicked, lost in the miry clay of self-destructive sin has been ransomed. We've been redeemed. We've been removed from the pit of our destruction. We've been elevated, lifted up, set along with you, Lord Jesus, in heavenly places in the spiritual realm to celebrate with joy, set free from the pangs of sin and death and the judgment our hell-bound life deserved, set free to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord Jesus, reconciled to a holy God because of the ransoming power of Christ's cleansing blood. Lord, declared holy by Christ's imputed righteousness. Lord, resurrected from the death of sin and newness of life, reborn in Christ. We, the saved and redeemed here, not by our merit, but on Christ's work alone, join in a thankful heart of praise and prayer to you because of the great gift of salvation. As we open up the love letter that you have written to us, full, Lord, saturated with the truth and self-disclosure from the throne room of God on your nature and character and what life in you represents, I pray that we would love every word. I pray that we would submit to your word as the authoritative rule for our lives, but we would do so joyfully as a subject ransomed, set free, and in love with our King. I pray that you would equip us and thoroughly equip us to bring the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of heaven to lost and dying ears, that you would open those ears, open those eyes, they might hear and see the good works and the greatness of our God who became a man, who walked this earth, who preached the kingdom, who died a criminal's death in substitute for us, who, risen, who rose and now is ascended and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And it is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. I invite you to remain standing or stand with me and open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 20. Open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 20 and we will read this morning verses 1 through 16 and preparing our hearts to hear the word of the Lord. The title of this morning's message is Minimum Wage and the title refers to the remuneration upon the finished or the end of our life and the completed task that the Lord has for each of us in Christ and what that looks like and how we can learn about the kingdom of God further from the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. So with your Bible open, read with me if you would. We'll actually begin in 1930 and read this parable. Follow me as I read. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. 
And to them he said, Go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. Verse 6, And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more because each of them also received. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Do you not agree, did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So, verse 16, the last will be first and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you have a copy of the notes from the back, you'll notice in the description of the message I've included a few historical details, a few cultural notes of context that will help us understand this parable. Before I give those to you briefly, I just want to introduce this message by saying this passage of Scripture has been considered a difficult one to interpret and apply through the ages. As I studied for today's message, I found the commentators would sometimes disagree. But I also found that is often the case in my studies of the Bible that where two well-meaning individuals disagree, they've often gone too far, perhaps each of them or perhaps one of them. And sometimes we need to heed the advice that I think is wise and hermeneutically sound. Hermeneutics means a good study of the Scriptures, following basic rules to have the Scripture interpret the Scripture. And the basic rule that I'm thinking of when it comes to parables is this. Don't read too much into them, but instead look at the context, what can be known for sure in the message and its surrounding material that is delivered in the narrative, and then think about those applications. Do your best to attach them to uh, what might be meaningful to you, and then leave it at that. And that certainly is enough. Some might lament that the Scriptures aren't quote-unquote deeper or there might not be more to gather. Let's not be, uh, let us not fall into that error. Although we can sometimes go too far, if you will, with the Bible, we must remember that the Word of God is always sufficient. And if we go too far, we've gone away from what is the core, the sound, and the sufficient. And so in an effort to avoid those errors today, Hold me accountable in this message to the greater portion of the context, and let's see indeed what riches and what treasures of the kingdom of heaven are laced within the words that we just read that we might draw from the pages of our text to learn more about the mysterious, unfolding, glorious kingdom of heaven. Here are a few notes that may help. 
From the historical context, it's helpful to understand that this parable is given in the historical setting, which includes certain economic uh, specifics and laborers and vineyard and so on. So if we note the following observations, I think these can be helpful. First of all, when you see vineyard in Scripture, and when we read about a vineyard in this parable, we can be reminded of a context in greater Scripture, the Old Testament included, which employs metaphors like husbandry, plantings, and indeed a vineyard. That term itself is specifically used. And so we'll note in the course of this message a few reference points in the Old Testament to understand the significance of the term vineyard. But for introduction this morning, suffice it to say, in the history of special revelation, that means in the history of God's revealed truth in the Bible, the term vineyard or the concept vineyard is often employed as a metaphor illustrating aspects of God's communion with His covenant people. So the vineyard is a term illustrating aspects of God's communion with His covenant people. God tills and tends, like a vineyard, His people. Those He ransoms and redeems, those He saves, He also equips and maintains. He did this through the provisional means of the old covenant, law and ceremonies and sacrificial system that we read about prior to the New Testament. And he does this even today in his church through the means of the delivery of his word, which we are taking part in right now, through the assembly of the beloved, through our prayers, through the Holy Spirit, the promised paraclete, the helper that comes alongside. God tends and maintains his vineyard. You'll remember in the New Testament, correlating passages as well from the book of John, for instance. I am the vine, we read. You are the branches. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. And there again is the picture of vineyard or planting or vine. A connectivity to the source, to the root, and to the husbandman who would take care of us, his planting, his work of cultivation, his garden. And so in those pictures, we have something of the idea of vineyard. Secondly, and more briefly, consider a workday. A workday in ancient Near Eastern times, contemporary to the delivery of this parable, consisted of the time from sunrise to sunset. So regardless of the time of year, from sunrise to sunset, that was your workday. And what the ancients would do, or what the people would do at this time, is divide that day into about twelve. And that would be the 12 hours of a workday. And so these segments constituted one hour, the workday from sunrise to sunset, divided by 12. And so when we see the time divisions in this parable, we see that approximately divided by four, the Lord or the master of the house goes out and hires workers until the 11th hour, which is just before the close of, that wor- of the contemporary workday that Jesus is dealing with. Thirdly, we mentioned this in a prior message, but it bears repeating. A denarius is a unit of monetary value. It's a measure um, that was common in that day that referred to or that was representative of an average daily wage. So a denarius a day was about what you could expect for a good hard day of labor. A denarius for a 12-hour workday. And finally, a historical note of context, the marketplace. This refers to centers. Marketplaces were centers of commerce 
where a town might be or merchants might assemble. This is where labor was secured or employment was sought, where contracts were negotiated and where goods and services were exchanged. So that's just a helpful cultural note to understand our text today. So that's kind of a brief historical context of the elements of this parable. And as we plug in some of that into our text, I think we can get a little clearer picture of what Christ means through this metaphor to convey. Secondly, this morning, in introduction and context, I'd like to give you a literary and theological context. When I say literary, I mean in the context of what is written around this passage. That would be Matthew 19, the second half, and the remainder of chapter 20. Consider briefly, it is imperative, in fact, to recognize, it is absolutely important to recognize that this parable assumes the same basic structure or shape as the previous events in chapter 19. I'll remind you just briefly, in 618 we have this account. Jesus said to him, who's he speaking to? The rich young, or I'm sorry, the rich young ruler says to Jesus, which ones, asking him which commandments must I keep? Jesus said to him, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these have I kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, verse 21, if you would be perfect, Go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So issue number one to note in this context is possessions, ownership, proprietary right to material things. This was the issue that stood between the young man and the Lord. The Lord, Jesus, told him, sell all you have, sell your material, temporal possessions that aren't really ultimately yours anyway. After all, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the people, the world, and all who dwell therein. Sell your possessions, which you have only a temporal claim to anyways. Come follow me and you will possess something else. You will gain you will have credited some to you something else, indeed, treasure in heaven. So the context is ownership and possessions. And because the man could not release his idolatrous ownership that he claimed for himself of his material wealth, he went away sorrowful. So that's part of the context of this exchange. In 23, we continue to read, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The second issue, the second uh, concept to note then in this passage is the impossibility of salvation as far as with respect to man and the glorious miracle of salvation with respect to God. We mentioned last week, in summary, salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Jesus uses purposefully this hyperbolic language to show by, again, another metaphor that it is impossible for man to save himself. A camel could sooner go through the eye of a needle. What do we learn? We learn from this that salvation is God's doing. That is, God is sovereign over the process that brings you out of darkness into glorious light. Brings you from spiritual death to resurrected new life in Jesus Christ. That causes you to be born again. That causes you to be a new creation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is sovereign over the electing process. And then the third point in context deals with rewards. 27, Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you will, who have followed me will have, you who have followed me, uh, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children for my, or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And so then the third point in that passage, in that narrative, is promises to the disciple, the reward, the future, the destiny, glory, heaven, and wallet promises. So again, note the shape. First, the rejection of the rich ruler who could not relinquish his possessions. Secondly, a commentary on salvation. Salvation is the sovereign, miraculous, divine intervention of the Holy Spirit of God. And number three, the promises to the disciples. That is the reward for their service to the Lord, which on account of what He has done in their hearts and the fruit in keeping with repentance that attends the believer. And what happens when they die? They go to glory. So that's the shape. Rejection of the young ruler, the counter possessions, a commentary on salvation, and then promises to the disciples. Well, this, of course, corresponds with the shape of the parable that follows the laborers in the vineyard parable. parable. Noticed first that the master of the house owns the vineyard, and it is he who secures the labor for his proprietary land. He is the landlord. He is the owner. Those who come and serve in this capacity do so on his property, and they serve at his good pleasure. So there's a question of ownership in view. Secondly, The laborers are hired. They are chosen by the master of the house who sends those who represent him. They go out to the marketplace. He goes out to the marketplace in the third hour, for instance, in verse 3. He sees others standing idle, and he approaches them. He goes to them and says, come with me and serve at my vineyard. It is the active role of seeking that is taken on by the master of the house. Thus, the laborers are hired. Again, a picture of election. And thirdly, the parable deals with the payment in wages or the reward for this work at the end of the day. In verse 10, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. So there you have some context for you. First, a few historical details, and secondly, the literary and the theological context of what is going on here. In short, the emphasis and theological theme 
of both the narrative that precedes the parable and the parable itself, in summary, might be stated as follows. God is totally sovereign over property, election, and rewards or wages. God is sovereign over all the earth, over all things, over property, over election, the process, and the means of salvation. And thirdly, over the future rewards and wages and glorious expectation of hope eternal in Christ. So with that introduction and context, let us consider three applications this morning of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Three applications of the laborers in the vineyard parable. Briefly, they are as follows that I want to suggest this morning. Number one, there's a providential application. Number two, there's a covenantal application. And number three, there is an individual application. Now again, I mentioned the commentaries in introduction. Commentaries fall in different areas weighing whether or not this is a covenantal application. Covenantal referring to, are we talking the difference between Jews coming to Christ and Gentiles? Is that the context of this parable? Or is this a more of a providential application? It deals just with the immediate text and showing God's providence related to an apostolic call versus others? Or thirdly, does this signal uh, something of an individual application that a person in various stages of their life can come to Christ and the rewards can in one sense be the same whether they get saved at a very young age or in their later years? Well, I want to submit to you that in some dimension, I think all three are legitimate applications so long as we take them within the overriding and the contextual principles of this parable. And let's consider, or let's consider application number one, providential application. Notice again in verse 12, those who were complaining said the following in their appeal or their grievance to the master of the house. They said, these last worked only one hour, but you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. In God's providence, there are those within the kingdom of God who are called to a unique path of suffering, a higher degree, an exceptional amount of endurance as far as circumstances are concerned in this life. We're all called to a measure of endurance, but there are some who are providentially called to more. There are some who have the gift, if you will, the calling of martyrdom. There are those who suffer in their physical body and indeed in extreme hardship for the Lord's name's sake. There are those, these are the ones who, yes, rightly, could be said to have borne in the picture of the metaphor the burden of the day and the scorching heat. In God's providence, they receive a glorious reward. But in God's providence, the message of this parable in Matthew 20 is those who haven't been privileged to endure or to fellowship with as many or as much, circumstantially speaking of Christ's sufferings, also go to glory. They also receive a crown. They also can expect a reward. This is a providential application of this message. Consider it in context 
This follows a question again of the apostles of Jesus. They say in verse 28, truly, or in 27, Peter says, he asks, we have left everything and follow you. What then will we have? In other words, Peter says, I dropped my nets. My comrades here have done the same. We've left our occupation. Even Matthew himself immediately left his occupation as a tax collector. That lucrative vocation was left completely on the table. He followed Christ immediately. When Christ delivered the same charge to him as he did the rich young ruler, his answer was the polar opposite. Yes, he just simply followed the Lord. But what did he leave behind? He left behind creature comforts. He left behind financial stability and perhaps independence. He left behind associations that gained him purchase in the community, in the society of the day. Others left things like that for Christ as well. They left the good standing and the good graces of even the religious and certainly the political community of that day. All these forces around Christ and His popularity shifting to anger of the masses, crucify Him, crucify Him. All those circumstances served as suffering for the initial apostles and greater still as their lives and ministries unfolded. History and tradition record that all of them but John perhaps were sent to a martyr's death on behalf of of the greatness of the gospel. We know in the passages of Revelation that detail for us the circumstances that John received that glorious download from the Holy Spirit of God, that glorious picture into heaven, that revelation. He did so under lock and key. Chains were on his hands and feet as he heard the Lord and saw him in that great vision. So the question then Assuming this and sufferings that were to come is, since we have left so much and suffered so much and followed you, Lord, what are we to expect? What then will we have? And the Lord says, Jesus tells them, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel." Now, this might seem like a glorious position of authority indeed, and there is a significance to what Jesus has said. But I submit to you that the parable that follows this promise serves as a humbling counterbalance for the Pharisees. That is to say, less than any aspect of Peter's question, less any aspect of Peter's question might include this attitude, hey, what's in it for us? What special favors do we get? Or what can we expect um, selfishly? And don't we deserve by our own um, humility and piety and, and service to your kingdom something extra, something special? Lest they be tempted to consider themselves worthy of this extra and providential reward of being influential in the gospel going forward, represented in them sitting on 12 thrones of the 12 tribes this parable is delivered. There will be others who follow you that don't sit on 12 thrones, that don't serve an office of apostle. But when the day of accounts is unfolded and that day of reckoning comes, they also will receive a like reward. The laborers in this parable are examples that make abundantly clear the providence of God in apostolic privilege. There is indeed a unique status 
for the original 12. And we see that unveiled and unfolded in Scripture. But this unique status does not imply, it does not imply any intrinsic value in and of the disciples, the apostles themselves. Instead, it was evidence of the sheer grace and the providence of God. This idiom is soon employed after Jesus promises them this state of authority and influence and significance. He says in verse 30, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And in so doing and stating the terms this way, this idiom actually serves, I'm told, to erase the distinctions between the most important and the least important. It's quite obviously so. It's not that there will be some kind of hierarchy, as it were, within the kingdom of heaven that uh, shows that some were more deserving in and of themselves than others. But instead, the terms in the hierarchy or the terms of the relationships and status and privilege within the kingdom are entirely different than this world. It turns the conventions of the pecking orders of social circumstances and societies in this world on its head. In the kingdom of God, it is the first who will be last and the last who will be first. This shows up in the context of the parable. It even says in verse 8 that the first ones to be paid their wages were the ones who came on the field last. Hardly seems fair. Well, if you use man's standards, that, that's true. But this is the economy of grace and salvation we're talking about here. And then again, the theme of first and last is repeated in verse 16. Jesus says, to the last will be first and the first last. So under the providential application of this message, it shows, the text shows us that the unique calling of anybody who suffers for the kingdom of God or is influential from a preacher who preaches and declares a word before a congregation to a parent who raises diligently and faithfully kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, all the way back to the apostles who recorded and testified and were inspired by the Holy Spirit to inscripturate the words of Christ. All of those privileges are God's providence. We are, did not earn them in our own merit, but He saw fit to glorify Himself by using some in extraordinary ways. A lesson for us today. If God has used you and privileged you to experience or to apply in an extraordinary way any of the benefits of salvation, if you've had the privilege of standing there, perhaps leading someone in prayer, when they commit their life to Christ in the very first place, remember that that is God's providence. It is a privilege that you did not earn or merit. It is not the product of your diligence as much as it is the total. It is, in fact, totally and utterly the grace of God. Secondly, in the kingdom of God, we learn soon that there is a servant-hearted greatness that defines those that are to be uh, heralded or honored in any way in the kingdom of heaven. The immediate context, not just preceding the parable with which we just explored, but that which follows indicates more of this theme. Turn with me to chapter 20, verse 20 through 28, where we have this exchange recorded in the text. 
When the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him, that is Jesus, with her sons, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say what uh, these two sons, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They, at this point, the disciples, said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And then the ten heard it, and they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Remember, he has just delivered them the parable, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. They had not got it yet. They were still operating on carnal terms. Jesus interrupts their thought process and their preconceptions again by saying, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He exemplified and declared this later in the book of John when he washed their feet. The incarnate Son of God, the Lord of glory, man, fully man but fully God, God in the flesh, there revealed two natures without mixture, yet 100% God, 100% man. This individual, unfathomable in his importance, in his scope, in his authority, got on his knees, took a towel and water and presumed to help the disciples with the cleanliness of their feet. When Christ took that position, He was modeling for them what servant-hearted leadership looks like. Whoever would be first among you, He says in 2027, must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Paul said to the Corinthian church toward the end of his, God, of, of his message to them when he was exasperated at them because they were in their flighty affections. They were going toward the self-made, the self-important, the self-acclaimed who said, listen to me how good I am at speaking. Look at me how influential I am at my polemics and the way I can interact with people. I am an imposing personality. And these were the kinds of quote-unquote apostles that the church was tempted to follow. And Paul was exasperated with them. He said, what are you doing? Can't you recognize what servant-hearted leadership looks like? And he said of himself, I'm willing to spend and be spent for your souls. This is what the position of privilege in the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like following the servant-hearted sacrificial model of our Savior. If you would be great, lay your life down. If you would be important, serve the least of these. If you would be known before the throne of God as one in good standing, then be content to fellowship with the destitute and the afflicted and ones who the world says are foolish. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. Let us watch our values, our ideals, our hearts these days. Because the world preaches a different gospel than this. The same errors that are apparent in the text are apparent in our world today. They're all around us. 
They even pervade like a cancer, the Christian church. So much so that in some cases and in some sectors, I hesitate to call it Christian anymore. Why? Because those most elevated, most prominent, most influential are the ones least likely to be least among them, least likely to lay down their life, but instead serve a different model, a model like the Gentiles who lord it over others, a model like the great ones in the world's eyes who exercise authority over them. There's a providential application of Matthew 20 that communicates to us that in God's providence, He has ordered things a different way. It is a servant-hearted greatness that defines what we ought to pursue within the kingdom of God. The immediate context following this parable, it declares with the parable itself, whoever would seek greatness will be disappointed. Greatness as the world defines it in the kingdom of God. Because kingdom status in the kingdom of heaven is measured by servitude and sacrifice. Servitude and sacrifice. Thirdly, let me give you a historical illustration of the history of the church as another way to understand and and apply Matthew chapter 20. In 325 A.D., a council was called by Constantine as we read the annals of history on account of the controversy and heresy that was gaining popularity. There was a shift, historically speaking, in Christendom at this time away from persecution and more of a deferment, at least in certain sectors here and there, to the authority that Christ represented, even by some uh, political leaders. Self-serving and as mixed motive and perhaps dying in their own sins as they may be, nevertheless, the social circumstances of Christianity related to the populace were changing. In God's providence at this time, 325 A.D., a council was called, and from that council we get the great Nicene Creed, which details for us biblical themes of the Trinity. These were written down because they were challenged in their day. There were those who would persecute the church on account of their claim to the deity of Christ. There were those who tried to infect the church and the knowledge of the populace with error and heresy, writing prolifically of their own ideas, trying to undermine the clarity, the truth, the exclusivity, the beauty, and the purity of the gospel once delivered to the saints. During this time, it's recorded by a 5th century historian, Theodoret, that this council met, and here's an example of those that attended, representatives of the church of Jesus Christ that assembled some 300 or so at that meeting included Paul, bishop of Neo-Caesarea, That was a fortress situated on the banks of the Euphrates. Paul had suffered from the frantic rage of Licinius. He had been depraved of the use of both hands by the application of a red-hot iron, by which the nerves uh, which give motions to the muscles had been contracted and rendered dead. This man had been branded by a hot iron such that he could not write anything, he could not hold anything, His hands were useless. Some others, again, Theodoret writes of this council, some had had the right eye dug out. Others had lost the right arm. Among these was Aphinitus of Egypt. In short, the council looked like an assembled army of martyrs. Some 200 to 300 assembled what looked like in this historical account 
as an army of martyrs to write down words that we treasure today and to stand on the ones for all faith delivered to the saints to declare that God is triune. He is one God in the three persons. The point I want to bring forward to you today is what if you got in a time machine and had the privilege of joining that assembly? I don't see any right eyes gouged out in this room on account of your suffering for Christ's sake. I don't see any scars and singeing having suffered at the hands of cruel magistrates because of our confession of faith and fidelity to our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't see any limbs cut off. I just see whole saints. I see those who are privileged in God's providence to live in a time of relative peace. What if one of us or two of us were able to join that assembly? Would we feel like we belong there? As we looked at those heroes that suffered for Christ's name, would we cower in shame? Would we think of ourselves less worthy of joining that assembly because we had not the marks in our own body of that same kind of suffering? Well, one of the glorious hopes that is given to us in Matthew chapter 20 is that we do have fellowship with an assembly such as that. Why? Because more important, more definitional, more foundational than our own suffering is the suffering of Jesus Christ our Lord. We carry around the suffering broken body of Jesus Christ. And that is our badge of authenticity as believers. Thus, no matter how oppressed and how great we might elevate in our own mind our heroes of the faith, we have sweet communion with the church universal because of the truth of this parable. Regardless of what God ordains for us to suffer, we are united with our brothers and sisters who have suffered and even suffered today under circumstances similar to that historical illustration. So that is an attempt to apply the parable of the labors of the vineyard providentially and contextually. Secondly, let us consider a covenantal application of this parable this morning. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 80. Psalm chapter 80. In the book of Psalms, of course, there being poetry, there's vibrant imagery that's implored, employed to communicate the glorious truths of God. And in this psalm, it's no exception. But I want to draw your attention to a specific item and metaphor in the text that draws out for us clarity and beauty as to vine or vineyard. Notice in verse 8, you, speaking of the Lord of hosts, brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boars from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O Lord of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. And have regard for what? In verse 14, for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. 
But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the Son of Man, whom you have made strong for yourself. And we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. There is a covenantal application to the vineyard of Matthew 20, I submit to you. And a point of reference in Old Covenant writing is found here clearly in Psalm 80. Another one to write down, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Speaks of the people of God. You remember I mentioned to you aspects of God's communion with His covenant people are signified by the term vineyard. In Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, and also Jeremiah 2, 21 are just a few among many references of the term vineyard that's employed in redemptive, revelatory history. That is the history of God's relationship with His people. And this idea refers here, the vine refers to Israel. You probably heard it in the language and identified some clues that the metaphor was pointing to. Well, who was that vine that was brought out from Egypt? Well, that was Israel in her exodus, who was called out of Egypt and then planted in her own place, in her own land, the land of promise, land of Canaan, the promised land. This revelatory history refers to Israel as the specific people of God, who are tended to by the husbandmen of the vine, and thus, when they submit to His authority, they flourish and bloom. There's also uh, accounts in this text of those who have come to try to destroy and to trample this vineyard. But there's messianic hope because this stock was planted by what? Your right hand. The decree and the intention of God's will is evident in planting the nation of Israel as a vine. She will not utterly wither and die. But what she is and represents will ultimately flourish because of the right hand that planted it. And in addition, that right hand will deliver another aid to her, verse 15. And for the Son, whom you made strong for yourself. Do you hear the promise and the prophecy of Messiah in the text? Verse 17, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the Son of Man, whom you have made strong for yourself. So here's the picture. God's right hand planted and tended the nation of Israel. God's right hand delivered to His people the Messiah, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time. And thus, in the language of Psalm 80, we have the picture of vine unfolding, unveiled for us, especially with New Testament clarity, as to the covenantal application of Matthew 20. How do we relate the two? Well, we see in Matthew 20, we hear in Matthew 20, that the Son of Man prophesied in Psalm 80 is now standing on the very soil in which the vine of Israel was planted. And He is there declaring the terms of the kingdom of God. And He is decreeing that there will be a contingency of the redeemed that will endure forever and will receive treasure in heaven. And he is de delineating the terms and conditions, the aspects of this kingdom work. Old Testament in imagery comes into clear focus as we consider the covenantal application of this text. Secondly, under covenantal application, consider what work, ultimately, what work 
is rewarded. We see in the text that there were those who worked different stages and for different amounts of time during the day. Do you remember verse 2? After agreeing with the laborers, this is at the beginning, for a denarius a day, he sent them, sent them into the vineyard. And then going out about the third hour, he saw those idle in the marketplace and said to them, Go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Going out at the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same all the way up to the eleventh hour. But the surprising element of this parable is that when the balances are righted at the end of the day, those that had worked a full 12 hours were paid the same amount as those who worked just one. And I submit to you in the context of this parable, there's a covenantal application. And it ultimately can be said like this. Why were, in answer to the question, why were the, different, the workers who worked different times paid the same? Well, I submit to you, ultimately, it's because it was a different work than their own that was rewarded. Turn to Matthew 20, 17, and we see, as I recall, this third clear mention of the work of the Son of Man who tends the vineyard, dies for the vineyard, cultivates the vineyard, and by His own work on Calvary causes it to flourish. It is declared in this very text, verse 17, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, and flogged, and crucified, and He will be raised on the third day. I submit to you that if we are covenanted to Christ in the new covenant, we share in the rewards of the suffering of the Lamb of God. More than that, you, if you are a confessing believer today, if you are born again, you indeed are the rewards of Christ's own suffering. So ultimately, what work is rewarded? Ultimately, it is not so much the effort that we put out in this life that accounts for the wages that are earned. Ultimately, it is the work of Christ on Calvary that is the cause and the foundation for the wages that we earn. The Bible says, without Christ, the wages of sin is death. But conversely, what do we have in Him? But the gift of God is eternal life. Wages, gift. Merit, grace. Christ's work fulfilled the law and the covenant of works so that we in the covenant of grace might receive as a free gift what He purchased through His merit, what He earned. So there is an application, Matthew 20, of the work of Christ. And I believe it's no accident that right on the heels of the delivery of this parable is Christ's own declaration of the ultimate work that purchases for us our rewards. Finally, under covenantal application, there's a signal illustration of a shift. There is an application of the terms of covenant that is old to new, even Jew and Gentile. If you read on your own time in Acts 10, 34-38, this is where Peter gets this puzzling dream of a sheet full of unclean animals, and he is told, rise, kill, and eat. And it's a picture of God now, what had been rendered as unclean and outside of His covenant favor, now a door was being opened to the Gentiles. And the Apostle Peter, with 
key in hand, so to speak, was to be the first to walk through this door. And what would he deliver? He would deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ so that those who did not have, as Romans 2 says, the great benefit of the oracles of God, the history, the ceremonies, the heritage of ancient Israel, those, though those things were a benefit, the Gentiles who had no former understanding in their culture of the covenants of God would now, by the power of the gospel, receive the same wages as those who were blessed with that original dispensation or administration of the covenant. And so here again, we can see an application in Matthew chapter 20. The laborers that initially negotiated, as it were, for denarius a day, can be seen as actually in covenant. There was a prior covenant, if you will, with the first wave of laborers that went into the field. This could correspond to the covenant, the prior covenant with the nation state of Israel. But as the story unfolds, we see a welcoming, an invitation to the vineyard for more laborers who initially were not included in that covenant. Why? Because a new covenant is now on the scene. And so by the grace of God, which transcends our standards and measures of wages and merit, by the grace of God, His unmerited favor, you and me as Gentiles receive the same wages as the Jew. The covenantal application. Finally this morning, and most briefly, let us consider the individual application. For you indeed personally, and me personally, from the child who grows up in a covenanted home, in a home that preaches the gospel, all the way to the picture maybe most poignantly, dramatically represented as the thief on the cross, salvation visits individuals at different stages in life, sometimes by His grace, very young. And they fruitfully abound with the evidence of salvation nearly their whole life long. Praise to His glorious grace. But there are others who in their dying breath find Christ as the thief did on the cross. And when they die, they both enter paradise as it were and receive the same wages. This is the individual application. The Apostle Paul was a great example of this. <clears throat> Even within the context <coughs> excuse me, of his own apostleship. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read, in verses 7 through 10, <clears throat> Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by His grace and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. As we recall the context of Matthew 20, Jesus had promised the apostles a new world. Remember, these were those who faithfully followed Him 
when it was popular and unpopular, at least for the most part. Aside from a time of betrayal, and Peter represented in the apostasy, as it were, of Judas. These were the ones that paid their dues with Christ. They would deserve the most important position of promise, prominence, we would think, would we not? Jesus promised them, after all, if you, you that have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, as a glorious illustration to the parable that immediately follows, the laborers of the vineyard, God saw fit to raise up one apostle, who during the time the other apostles were following Christ faithfully, was actually killing and persecuting the church, or at least complicit with the death of the saints, who held the cloaks while Stephen himself, one of the first early believers, was stoned to death for simply preaching the truth. Paul was persecuting the church, he himself says, as one untimely born, born out of time, that is, removed from the initial few in that he didn't see in his physical experience at the same time the resurrected and the incarnate Christ the way the other apostles did. Again, he says, by, to, as distinct, uh, to distinguish himself from the privilege of the other apostles, he was the chief of sinners, unworthy to be called such because he persecuted the church of God. How in the world could he get the same wages? And in some ways, you could say Paul's wages actually eclipsed the other apostles if you judge it by how much influence he had in writing the New Testament account. His words, more than any other, grace our New Testament, at least by book count and by clarity. We see and we look to Paul for the systematic understanding of that very grace that saved him. Well, it was a grace that he knew personally. He was paid the same wages as the early apostles, and demonstrated in his own ministry, and his own call, in his own salvation, the truth of Matthew chapter 20. This morning, consider where your own heart is at. Consider where you stand with the laborers, or perhaps outside the vineyard. More importantly, consider where you stand with respect, relationship to the master of the house. As you search your heart, are you the rich young ruler, the young man who went away sorrowful because he could not let go what he preferred over Christ? Or are you one who can hear the call of the master of the house, even though it is the eleventh hour, saying, Come, why stand idle here all day? Come and serve in my vineyard. Come and follow me. Today is the day of salvation. The Bible would have you know in the perspective of the declared truth of the gospel that if you stand outside the vineyard, today is the 11th hour. You have waited too long. Submit to the Lord. Submit to the kingdom of heaven. Submit to the master of the house. Confess your sins as Paul did and throw yourself on the grace, the gospel. Today you could receive in Christ the same wages as those who have labored, the saints that have gone before and the saints that you know even today. In closing, let us remember not to begrudge the Lord on account of His generosity. After all, it was by grace that we were saved. Indeed, let us celebrate His generosity today. Let us declare and let us proclaim and remember the truth that Matthew 20 represents. As the famous commentator John Gill writes, 
special grace is his own, that is Christ, which he gives to whom he pleases. It is by his own grace and not the merits of men that any are chosen, adopted, justified, pardoned, regenerated, and called. That they have faith, hope, love, repentance, or perform new obedience from a new heart and new principles. Heaven and glory is his own, of his own preparing and giving. Both grace and glory are disposed of, and that very rightly and lawfully according to his sovereign goodwill and pleasure. He, that is, the master of the house, our Lord and God, he chooses, adopts, adopts, justifies, pardons, regenerates, calls, and sanctifies whom he pleases, and brings what sons to glory he thinks fit, and bestows it equally upon all of them. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, those of us who were saved or even approach your throne of grace right now at the 11th hour, we rejoice because of the undeserved merit of salvation, equal wages with those who have endured and been faithfully serving, demonstrating the fruit of repentance much longer than we. The rest of us, Lord, who may have grown up in privileged homes where the gospel was taught and we were led in the ways of the Lord, Father, we celebrate and glorify your holy name because you show yourself to be gracious, powerful, and merciful in saving, even at the 11th hour, those for whom we labor to preach the gospel to. Those of our relatives, those of our friends, laborers in the field, Lord, of our own vocation, perhaps, whom we cry out, Lord, save them. Lord, we thank you that you are capable of saving in the third, in the sixth, in the ninth, and even in the eleventh hour. I pray that you would remind us, Lord Jesus, this morning that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And it's in that holy name we pray. Amen.